Hello, cooperators, and welcome to Commons Place, your source for news, analysis, and voices from the cooperative economy in the United States. I'm Alex Breeden, here to introduce this week's segment on an interpreter's cooperative in New York City. Catacol Interpreters Cooperative provides both interpretation and translation services between English and Spanish to ensure language justice in New York's communities. For more on this cooperative, we go to two of Catacol's members and our own Leila Lin. Welcome to Nash and Felix. Why don't we start from talking a little bit about who you are and how you became involved with Caracol. My name is Talesh Lopez. I am one of the co-founders of Caracol Interpreters Co-op. I've been an interpreter um, beginning on a volunteer basis um, for over 10 years now um, and really fell in love with the work and really understood the, the importance of the work through um, volunteering uh, at a domestic worker organizing organization. Um, and now um, that, that inspired the beginnings of Caracol. Um, and um, I am in, have been in different committees of Caracol um, throughout its inception, um, but I'm an interpreter and I also do other things internally. I am Felix Gardon, and I am probably the newest of the worker owners of Caracol. I'm uh, both an interpreter and a translator. Um, and I guess I've been um, in the field of language justice uh, probably since the late 80s. Um, I started a lot of the work through uh, um, working against the English only movement and uh, um, moving into a spaces to creating some of the dialogues for um, LGBTQ communities being impacted with HIV and not having access to language around health and basic health issues. Um, back in Philly and then back in here did a lot of activism to create spaces um, around sexual health uh, for communities and LGBT communities that were usually disenfranchised. So, um, and then um, um, I have met some of the um, worker owners and uh, comrades from Caracol through previous work. And I was very lucky to be uh, invited to join on the work. And I also been involved in various aspects of the um, current uh, Caracol a co-op and uh, the work we're doing right now. Can you tell me a little bit about Caracol's unique mission and the services it provides? So Caracol's uh, mission and dream um, when we started was, um, there was a couple of things, right? I mean, the uh, first of all, our mission is to high quality interpretation and translation for social justice organizations. Um, and really uh, highlight the importance of language justice within our movement, right? And what that really means and what that looks like. Um, and so um, we have been doing that with multiple organizations, starting off, you know, pretty, like, you know, light with providing certain services and then going in deeper and having and providing more education around what language justice means um, within our movement and what it looks like within our movement. So it's not only providing interpretation services, but 
you know, are, are folks really um, engaged in processes or are they just walking into spaces where decisions have already been made for them and without any of their engagement, right? And if that's the case, then that's not, that's not creating a language justice um, space. It's actually just providing language access, which is not what we're advocating for. Um, for us, language justice means that folks um, are able to participate and engage in our decision makers um, in spaces that are doing work that impact their communities directly. Um, we also um, wanted to um, really also highlight the importance of this work and the value of this work because for, for many years it was perceived as work that could be volunteer and could be done by bilingual staff that had no real training. Um, and so we really wanted to highlight that this is actually skilled work and that um, that it needs to be compensated and that there's a whole area of, there's a, it's a whole sector um, that needed to have some attention. Um, and in addition to that, we decided to have a worker-owned model because we um, had, all of us had worked within the social justice movement in some way, shape, form, or another as activists, um, as organizers, as coordinators of different programs, um, and really wanted to uh, create a, a different model of work and not having it be a nonprofit um, because we wanted to be autonomous and also um, not be a, a regular business because we didn't really see, uh, we didn't really envision one person making all the decisions for our group, but rather the group, um, you know, be fully engaged in decision making. And so that's a little bit about our structure and the way that um, that, that we do our work and the way that we see the role of our work within the social justice movement. We also were clear that we wanted to work with social justice organizations that are uplifting our communities. Um, so we work in areas um, of the LGBTQ community, labor, community organizing, um, re reproductive health, uh, education justice, and, and housing justice um, around the city. Um, we do work with other larger institutions, but that is like our main area of focus um, that we work with. And um, we also are committed to having a membership that is representative of the communities that we work with. So we um, have in the, in the forefront of our membership communities of color, indigenous communities, Afro-descendant communities, um, in uh, historically, some of this work as interpreters and translators um, hasn't been really done by people from the communities that are represented. Um, so that is definitely part of our, our mission as well. So you mentioned like there's this difference between just language access and language justice. Um, mm -hmm. And then maybe Felix, can you provide like some, con because, um, so yeah, I, I, let, me, I, so let me provide the context because mm -hmm. this is then how the services we provide are a translate mm -hmm. tool mm -hmm. to create both language and access and also provide educational spaces to decolonize language as what are the main languages used in terms of decision making and also construct new structures to provide spaces for everybody to work. So we're both doing this by spoken language and also creating spaces for community to also learn and hear language mm -hmm. differently and also address 
what they actually need in order to make their own decisions. And at the same time, we're working by doing translations and addressing issues around gender and many of the other pieces that are very much constructed in many of the challenges of um, the multiplicity of languages that come into one community. So um, the services we provide, like translation, interpretation, educational services, not only act as an ancillary way of working, but they're also a tool of enhancing how the movement creates and provides services to the community, and at the same time, creating a viable, sustainable economic source for members of the community, queer community, indigenous women community, all the communities that usually don't have access to many of the economic sources that other people have. Um, and this is a really big need because we actually provide also ways for other people to see how to engage in this process and, and, and not become not only us as the only providers, but people that can actually enhance this provision in other communities for this. Can you give me some examples of communities that were impacted by the lack of access to language justice? You can look at it in many different ways. Uh, the mm -hmm. impact on the onset of HIV AIDS in mm -hmm. communities of color and the lack of access for language um, for actually education and that. The, the, the housing crisis and what happened in Bronx and where many Latino communities were being evicted and lack of services were provided for them to actually be able to defend themselves against the fires that happened. So historically, many of our communities have been impacted by the lack of language services because we've said what they were, we're being culturally competent, but we're actually imposing many of our views by not having opportunities for people to both hear and express themselves in their own languages. We're actually pandering to an ideology of just letting a language define and translate versus allowing people to speak in their voices and create their own realities. Yes, yeah, so I'll add a little bit onto what Felix said. Um, um, you know, there's been research um, specifically around New York City that shows that um, the lack of uh, translation and interpretation services within the medical um, industrial complex um, has really impacted communities, right? And so the city um, has not been doing a good job with this. Therefore, there has been coalitions of organizations, community organizations that have really fought to make sure that there's interpretation and translation in social service settings because people were not getting the appropriate services that they needed due to lack of access to uh, of materials in their language and, and information in their language. Um, so in, I don't have the exact dates in my brain right now, but that did happen. And then there were laws that were passed and now we're in the process of implementation and, and making sure that the city does make sure that that happens, right? And, and figuring out how how they're going about it. And so the, there's organizations also making sure that that happens. That's also happening in the public school system. Um, there's an organization up in the Bronx that is, um, you know, calling attention, calling the Board of Education's attention for the fact that there is now an African population in the Bronx and that they're not being responsive towards the language needs of, of this new community in the Bronx and being in the forefront and ready, right, to respond to. Uh, to those needs. So one of our clients 
is actually doing a lot of work with parents, parents who are really engaged in the process. Um, and so that is actually an example of how, how this is more institutionalized uh, and systemic. Um, and it, it is also an example of our clients that we work with. So one of our main clients is um, new settlement apartments up in the Bronx, and they work with parents who have children or are um, or living communities where there are schools that have been really underserved, and also there has been a lot of police presence, um, and they also do a lot of work around housing. Um, and so, um, one way that this organization really combats this, you know, the issue, these particular issues, is that they go to the community and they have community members fully engaged in these processes, meeting with. Um, elected officials talking to them about their stories, sharing um, the difficulties that either their children have experienced or that they see or they themselves have experienced in, the, in their housing situation. Um, so that's an example, that's an example of, of one of the groups that we work with. Um, in addition, the bulk of our clients are social justice organizations um, doing community-based organizing, um, again, focused around housing, um, focused on um, access to space. Um, we have clients um, that are uh, making sure that you know a community garden is accessible to the Latino community that is that's it that it's in, for instance, right? And that it's not only a community garden that produces everything in English and is only run by by people that speak English only, and that the members are aren't only English speakers, but they're really opening it up and saying, hey, we're actually in a Latino community. We want to make sure that this community also has access to the space. So let's bring in some interpreters when we, you know, are going to have a community meeting for a garden. Um, in addition to that, we work with bigger institutions such as universities, uh, training centers, and foundations. Um, but the bulk of our work is more community-based organizations doing community organizing. Um, and, and we have had um, some um, work done with some um, school systems or other systems to the government, but they're also based on some of the schools that are doing the other part or the counterpart work of the community-based organizations. For example, we're working with some of the schools that are doing some of the work around restorative justice um, and supporting some of the PDA meetings because part of the issue is that accessibility piece and the bridging around uh, different intergenerational groups that usually don't get access to language, new immigrants and new communities that are walking in and walking into new systems that usually don't understand. So it's having this kind of um, accessibility to both language and also creating that space to move meetings along allows to a better flow to many of the discussions and the processes that are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we, oh. our, our work out acts pretty much, uh, in, in my opinion, as a binding process to many different processes that are happening ancillary to do movement around housing, around education, around uh, economic justice, around LGBTQI justice, around, you know, many of the issues that are pretty much social justice based, uh, but we actually bring many of the different agents from different aspects to, to the table by binding language and integrating some of the stuff that is happening. 
I'm just wondering, how would the services differ if your clients, such as the social justice organizations, um, if they had to rely on traditional translators and interpreters? Um, I think what sets Caracol aside is that folks um, that are part of our membership have been connected um, in their social justice movement within New York City, nationally or internationally or in their home countries. And so we have familiarity not only with the language, but with the culture, right? And not only culture as in the the country culture, but also like organizational culture, because a lot of us have worked within nonprofits and have also worked within campaigns. So we're very familiar with that work. Um, so that in itself becomes a pretty, that in itself becomes like a technical area, right? Um, and we have worked side by side and Felix can, I'm sure, experience with this um, in the past as well, but we worked side by side with people from agencies and they're not familiar with the, the language or the culture of the organization. And so there's, there's a different, in addition to that, we, we bring a particular, um, we, we, we bring particular care to our work because we our communities and we want to uplift our community. This is a, to do that. Um, so the way that we are in a space is very different than if we were just an agency that is just focused on sending people, sending people wherever they need to go, and you just go in and out and you're not engaged and you don't focus on education, right, about what language really means and what it could be like and, what, and that it's a tool for organizing as well. It's a stark difference. Yeah, uh, um, the experience has been for, for many of, the, of, of our both community and people that are working within the community is that um, by having uh, people that are also um, recognizable and people that are part of the community, it makes it easier to to actually engage in these conversations. And um, an example to this is um, doing a translation in courts with many of different court people versus uh, a Caracol member that is actually looking at also uh, not only transmitting a set of words, uh, but is very clearly intent in transmitting tone and message because that is what is most important for the individual that is conducting this kind of conversation. They're not only want the words to be heard, they want the intention and the tone of the sentiments behind those words to be also interpreted correctly. And that sometimes is what other interpretation qualities miss, which is something that we have been very much touted for being very able to do and capturing the intentions and the moments of people talking about the issues that are really impacting their lives and how they actually translate to actions and to different pieces of movement organizing. Let's pivot to the more organizational side of things. Um, so first, how many worker owners do you currently have in the co-op? We're a total of eight altogether mm -hmm. right now. Felix, you mentioned that you're the newest member of the Caracol Interpreters Co-op. Can you just talk a little bit about what the process was like for you to join um, the co-op? Well, I started working uh, as a contractor and collaborating for a while. Um, after a while, I was asked if I was interested in 
applying um, and then I said yes and then I was invited to apply and there is uh, an interview process that includes uh, both um, reference uh, language it's, it's a process that goes um, I probably it's now like a year for me since I become a full-time uh, work owner so it was like a year almost a year and a half before I was, this process was fully integrated. And we have been working on, on defining that process more and more right now because uh, we've been, I'm part of some of the other teams. We are committees that work and uh, um, as we have been uh, in our process of defining a lot of the committee work and how we um, create protocols, uh, it been part of this, uh, this, I've been part of this process too. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was around a year and a year and a half before I entered it. And there is going to be a process that is also more clear defined because right now we have a structure of um, collaborators and worker owners. And there's going to be a way of people, how we actually invite people to come to become worker owners. And it's part of the work that we're doing right now in some of our committees. What's the um, division of labor like in Caracol? How do you how do you all manage the day to day um, running of the business? Well, like Felix said, we do have committees that take up some work. Um, there are there is certain work that like day to day work that needs to be done that can't be done by committees because um, it needs to be happening consistently. For example. Um, we have an operations team, and that includes our coordinator. And our coordinator is the person who's in charge of um, scheduling and assigning interpreters to jobs, interpreters and translators. So sending uh, translation assignments and also scheduling interpreters to different job assignments. Um, and then the other person uh, does client uh, relations, um, and that's uh, my role. Um, so it's um, doing like onboarding of new clients and doing client negotiations and contracting. Um, and those are the more the more steady kind of positions. Um, we also have um, uh, some finance support um, that one of that um, our other worker owner is providing. Um, so making sure that we get our member dues submitted in a timely manner and a monthly basis. Um, and dealing a little bit more with our finances. And the mm -hmm. finance team, which Felix is a part of, um, takes on more looking at the financial health of the cooperative. Um, we also have the communications committee um, that is in charge of like our online presence and also um, external and internal communications for the co-op. So um, if we need to come up with some protocols of how we communicate internally or um, also for instance like this they deal with these types of communications like oh somebody reached out to us and wants to learn about our work and assessing who could be and making recommendations of who could be um, you know in, in interviews or panels um, and we also have um, Quality and Professional Development Committee, um, and so evaluating the quality of our work and also addressing some of our professional development interests, and, and, and that's a fairly new committee now. Um, um, and then we also have our coordinating committee, um, which is, we're currently, and 
some of our committee work, but the coordinating committee um, would be someone that a representative from each committee to um, really the make sure. Um, sorry, yes, the sense the Comité Central. central. I'm central. saying it in committee. It sounds funny in English. Comité Central um, is the committee that um, you know makes sure that all the committees are doing their work and also making sure that our work plan is being um, that the goals in our work plan are being met um, that's a bit about how work distribution happens that distribution is among worker owners mm -hmm. that kind of work is done mostly by worker owners because um, we have uh, the commitment is that since we are the ones that are getting um, the bulk of the work. We also have to do also the management of the business. Uh, collaborators don't participate in the committees. They're usually ancillary support when we need to make sure that there's coverage for other events if we have a really filled uh, schedule during time. And so like building this organization from uh, this co-op from scratch uh what was there any models for co-op structure that um you kind of re refer to or and i i understand that you've attended the green worker co-op academy was it helpful in any way what did you take mm -hmm. out of it so yes it, the 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 co-op academy was helping a sense of how other cooperatives um, were structured um but but to be honest with you it was kind of like building something new because our work was very particular um, and so and so um, we we use some of the learnings from there but also just you know build something from scratch um, but in regards to like our structure and making sure that you know each worker owner was engaged in in the decision making and major decisions of the cooperative was something that we were very clear about but I think because of the the nature of our work was is a little particular so so we had to sort of make up certain procedures um for our own business that some have worked and some haven't continually um you know make modify as needed but so i think that's that's very interesting because you know a lot a lot of co-ops you know are like kind of uh product oriented mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And the Caracol is, is service oriented. So can, mm -hmm. can you actually kind of talk a little bit more on that? Like what are some of the specific mm -hmm. things that like they, they were talking about that seem to that uh, be applicable to everyone else, but like then you're like, wait, this might not work mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, when people were talking about, for instance, and this was very tricky for us, when people were talking about capital, right? Having capital to start your business so that you can buy equipment so you, you can, you know, create your product. And, and initially we're like, well, we don't need capital. We, we have like, we're providing a service and, and for us, um, because we were really, <laughs> um, dream, we you know we were dreaming, we were dreaming a lot about what we wanted to create. We felt like, you know, our capital is our time, you know, we're providing our time and building this new thing, this new project, this new idea. Um, and, um, so it was hard when we got to those sections where we're like, well, we don't have to buy equipment yet because the equipment that we needed was a lot. It's really expensive. So we couldn't even imagine like thinking of buying that equipment. Um, 
and we all work from home. Therefore, you know, having a home office or having an office outside of our home didn't make sense. And we weren't, you know, didn't need any particular products. Um, and also uh, when it came to the way that we managed um, some finances, well, that, that structure was a little dif different as well. Um, and, and because we were small, there was only three of us at the time, um, some of the decision-making that we were learning were like, okay, sure, that's going to apply when we get bigger. Um, so it, you know, and there was just three of us at the time. So things felt pretty straightforward. Um, and, and, and then we grew. So. So you said since um, the business has grow, has grown uh, and you've clearly expanded from three to now eight worker owners, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. and did you encounter any difficulties when you're expanding due to like the nature of the co-op, um, and how did you um, deal with that? Um, I mean, there's difficulties <laughs> all the time. So what in particular, like, do you mean? Because, you know, when, when you start out, it's just three people and you've worked together forever. And then like, and then what, what, at what point did you go like, wow, now we have, we can't manage this anymore and we need new people. And then like, mm -hmm. how, how did that, how did you mm -hmm. come to the conclusion? And since mm -hmm. have you like figured out ways to like, um, mm -hmm. like kind of evaluate demand and supply? Um, and then, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, <laughs> yes. So yes, having three people was was pretty easy um, at the beginning. Um, when we did start bringing in folks, we um, it was formal in certain ways and informal in other ways. And, and we learned that it was just not helpful. <laughs> And that we needed to be very specific in the type of person that we would be inviting um, to join the co-op as we were growing. Um, and so some of the difficulties that we we found in that is that we had to really figure out a good balance between are we looking for somebody who has really great skills as an interpreter? Are we looking for somebody who wants to be part of a co-op and is really interested in co-owning a business? Um, and realizing that that's a very particular profile, right? Um, and 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 we realize this because we were confronted with having good interpreters, but really we're not good team players. Um, and we had to find that out the hard way because, you know, either they weren't used to working with in, an organization that was led by women and women of color, or they were just not used to um, a process where it was a, a collective and even though you know when you present that it sounds pretty straightforward when we put it into practice it does take work and things take time um, when and, and as groups get bigger things take a little bit more time um, and I think that our growth has also shown that right like now we're not just feeling something as minimal as scheduling our monthly meetings well we need to think there's eight people who have different things going on it works for all of us so that's not as easy as when you're scheduling your membership meeting and there's three people or four people um a hurdle that we experienced and then we needed to develop calls and um have just the 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 right person and the right folks to um, become worker owners or be invited to be considered to be worker owners.
what are some of the other similar co-ops out there or language justice groups? Um, and did, did, was anyone uh, specifically inspired by you? We have been, I think, aware of many other groups and we're, we're group with um, like Aortan, Tena, you know, there's groups in, in New York like ACT, which is the African French um, Worker Cooperative. So we're not the only one working around language justice. We also are working with groups like MANS uh, that are actually trying to create other kind of uh, systems like that co-op in the Chinese community. So um, part part of, uh, of our work is not only um, being the only ones, but opening the door to create more of the spaces for other people. So we work with some other co-ops that are in Texas. We also have engaged with other people that are working um, in Washington, D.C. So we can actually provide um, opening to uh, interpreters and translators of their own community to be participants in the changes in their own communities as opposed to us being the only ones. So there's a lot of more of other groups also beginning to uh, provide the service. Um, and we also are trying to be um, a source to try to grow this kind of opportunity uh, for many people in the community that don't have a, a economic and disenfranchised by current situations where there is their status or um, or um, their community-based um, uh, uh, situation. Yeah, it's very exciting to, you know, I think that when you get um, kind of bogged down in the day-to-day -day work of a business you forget some of the experiences and learnings that you have and and being um, uh, sought out by the groups that Felix mentioned um, the the you know the group of Chinese um, interpreters Arabic speakers and African language speakers that seek us out um, it's it's just such a great reminder of how far we've come along in the last five years not only in, in, in our work as language justice practitioners, but also as a cooperative. And initially when we started, our, our main focus is, was language. Like we wanna, this is what we wanna do in the social justice movement. We were very, very clear. And that becoming a cooperative was a vehicle towards making that happen. Um, but through, through our experience, we realized like, whoa, we're actually building this cooperative that's pretty unique. So um, groups, other interpreters have really, you know, I mean, they can decide to just be a, a regular business if they wanted to, right? But I think that um, our team of interpreters and translators that are out there every day doing this work just do such a great job in that folks, you know, see them and are just inspired by the work that they see on the ground, so. Yeah, it's like not only, um, you're not only empowering the community, you're also empowering yourselves. And that's that's like really inspiring. Um, so thank you so much for volunteering your time and voice for this program. Great, thank you so much.